Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Hart, and with me I have the wonder of nature, the beautiful sex god that is Gary Bain. Hello, Gary. Hello. <laughs> Good mood, eh, mate? No, I'm fine today, <laughs> Pete. Dog's been dragging me round the field. Tell me about the dog. What? I believe today's because uh, you're a little late, weren't you, this morning? For, yeah, he decided uh, our, uh... to say goodbye to every blade of grass. Well, goodbye. Was there a lot of blades. Goodbye, blade of grass. Oh. Goodbye, another blade of grass. Goodbye, what did another say? blade of grass. <laughs> Took bloody ages. Anyway, what did you say? I said, oh, let's get on with the podcast. Now, today, Pete, it's uh, it's our second podcast, I think, uh, featuring the, uh, the Royal Norfolk Regiment. Fine body of men, Gary. And today we're concentrating on uh, a period of time which is colloquially known as the phony war period, aren't we? And uh, let's set the scene. We've already looked at uh, recruit, uh, well, basically at basic training. Uh, uh, um, and now we're going on to look at uh, how they deploy into action. Uh, and uh, we'll be uh, we'll be following them across uh, as they go to France. Uh, and they're going with the 2nd Infantry Division uh, as part of the British Expeditionary Force. We've got no imagination. I'm sure that's what we called it in the First World War. Would you say, Gary? I don't know. I wouldn't know. You wouldn't know. <laughs> why would? Why wouldn't you know, Gary? Come oh, on. I why wouldn't? You? I wasn't there. Unlike you, I, I wasn't born. So tell me a bit about uh, where they're sent. Uh, tell me a bit about where they're sent. Well, it, them and uh, the the first Royal Scots and the first Eighth Lancashire Fusiliers formed the the Fourth Brigade, and uh, the BEF has been assigned to defend the Franco-Belgian border. It's the bit that sort of abuts the imposing main French defences of the, uh, the the famous Maginot Line, Pete. Now, that extends all the way along the, the Franco-German border. Ah, right. Well, that, that's put me firmly in the picture anyway. So they go across with the rest of the BEF. Uh, I've no idea. I've, you know, I've forgotten when. <laughs> Well, it was probably 1939, and I would hasten that it was sometime between September and uh, December. Oh, that's brilliant! That well, I'm going for September. Um, and now, uh, so uh, so tell me what so what what's happening? What what is the Maginot Line, Gary? Well, the Maginot Lines it's named after the uh, the French Minister of War, Andre Maginot. And again, you know, he served in the in the, the Great War. He was uh, he was at near Verdun, I think. Um, it was built in the 1930s to deter invasion by Germany and force them to move around the fortification. Now, the problem is it didn't extend all the way through to the English Channel due to uh, the French strategy that envisaged a move into Belgium to counter any German assault. I think it was also pretty weak in the Ardennes area because they thought that the, the Germans wouldn't come through there because it's a forest. Well, yeah, they thought it was really rough terrain and, and that... It, you know, the Germans couldn't possibly force an invasion through there um, because uh, it, even if they did, it would be so incredibly slow that they'd have time to bring up reserves and counterattack. And who's it? So the in charge of the French plan would be uh, General Maurice Gamelin. Oh. Um, well, Gamelin. 
Um, so um, that this is a bit of a problem because the, the, the French army, the German army, would exploit this. It's a, it's a bit of a weak point, the whole Ardennes thing. Now, why did they build it? Let's brainstorm. Well, the primary purpose, Pete, as, as I mentioned, was to prevent a German surprise attack. Um, it's also going to... They, they've taken Alsace and Lorraine off the Germans... It's always in dispute, isn't it? It goes back to forwards like a horse draws in many ways. And uh, that was an unfortunate simile. That's one from the past. I apologise unreservedly. Uh, but, but So it was to protect their new acquisitions. Or um, Why else? Why else? Uh, what, 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 in what way were the French slightly disadvantaged? Well, in, they had in, less in a, uh, manpower than the Germans. So, so it was designed to save their manpower, um, which, you know arguably uh, was a was a, a, a good idea but only if the germans played ball and and attacked that line it would also i suppose give them time to to help mobilize get just a bit of extra time to mobilize i suppose uh there's another reason which is uh, sort of not quite so nice is it uh, why else would france want to uh well their basic plan was to move into belgium uh and to uh to meet the germans there why why would they want to do that well, if you think about it, what they're trying to do is entice the Germans to take the easy route through Belgium so that the fighting's actually taking place in Belgium and not, and in, not in France. France. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Any reason for that, you think? Well, I think it was the devastation caused by the Great War, Pete, wasn't it? I mean, even today when you visit the battlefields, you can see the, the, the scarring of the of the countryside. So, um yeah, they wanted, they wanted poor little Belgium to have the opportunity to suffer the same. Again, because yes, the French yeah. suffer. Now, uh, the, the, the French were assuming it would be a long war. Uh, they, they weren't really aware of the Blitzkrieg, uh, the, 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 the concept of, that the Germans were going to employ. Uh, can we talk a bit about more about the Maginot Line? Because it's the backdrop to, to have the deployment of the Royal Norfolk Regiment, because it, it underpins the whole British plan. So uh, what, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a line, it's not just a sort of trench line, is it? It's, it's made up of different layers. So give us an example. What, what's, what's the first layer? Yeah, I mean, it was very sophisticated, Pete. It, 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 the first layer was uh, a border post line of blockhouses, and they are built within a few yard, yards of the border. And the, and the whole point is, it's a bit like a picket line, actually. It's intended to raise the alarm and delay German tanks. That's what it's there so, for. So that's actually on the frontier, the German yeah. frontier. Uh, the, well, it's on the French frontier, yeah. Yeah, yeah if it's in the German uh, area, that would have been a bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah. The Germans might have objected. Then about three miles back, they'd have the outpost and support line, and that's uh, a line of anti-tank blockhouses again. The outpost. Uh, outpost, ah, outpost. outpost. And they're, uh, they, they, know, <clears throat> they know the importance of tank warfare then. Uh, so what's the principal line? Well, what's that? Where, where's that Well, that's be? about five, six miles behind the border, it's got strong anti-tank obstacles, barbed wire, Ooh. for example. There are bunkers that are armed with twin machine guns and anti-tank guns, and they're manned by 20 to 30 men. They've got small fortresses that reinforce the bunkers, and uh, these consisted of several bunkers all connected together underground, and they were manned by about Ooh, 100 tunnels. to 200 men, Pete. And they had separate observation posts which monitored any German progress and that could help direct the artillery fire. And let's not forget, artillery played a pivotal role in the Great War, so they were thinking about that. And finally, yeah. there's the main fortresses. Now, this was a combination of yet more bunkers, all connected... They're bunker mag. Bunker mad. Bunker mad. And they were all connected by tunnels. Now, in the tunnels, they had a narrow-gauge electric railway which transported between the bunker systems. I mean, it, so like a Deckerville railway for yeah, the Yeah, I mean, it, it was incredible. They had every facility, including barracks, mess halls, kitchens, water supply, ammunition stores, workshops, stores, electricity power station, and they controlled the ventilation to, to make sure they were secure from gas attack. And no, they, they, they used to get interesting in thinking about gas because, of course, they, we know there was no gas used in the, in the Second World War, but they didn't because it hadn't happened. No. And, and so how many would be in that, uh, one of those big fortresses, roughly? Well, I'd, I'd say 500 and 1,000 men, depending on the situation. But, you know, and, and here's where you and I may have a little bit of a debate. I'm a bit surprised at this because of what happened with the forts in the Great War because, you know, clearly it's static. That's it. That's where it is. 
Well, it, there's an argument that the Belgian forts uh, held up the Germans enough to give them yeah, that's uh, true. Allies time. <laughs> and then there is the argument that Verdun, although they took some of the forts, they didn't take they didn't take some of the others. Uh, it, it, it's a, a moot point, as they say. Uh, um, in the end, they don't attack the, the forts and it, it's all irrelevant. So in a sense, you're right. It, 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 it is a huge investment that doesn't, doesn't work. Um, and, and incredibly technical. I mean, the, the, you, see, uh, you can see this on the internet, of course. There are some films of the Maginot line in the 1930s, an incredibly technical achievement. But, you know... Now, I was fooling before. On 21st of uh, September 1939, the 2nd Norfolks... Uh, are the first battalion, I think, to of the BF to land in France. I don't know why I couldn't remember that date. I'm just daft. Uh, and they were initially billeted, uh, well, they were billeted uh, home from home, Gary, in the old uh, First World War battlefields, Great War, sorry, not First World War, Great War battlefields at Arras. And they got a, a pretty good reception for, from the from the French civilians. And this is, a, this are these quotes, are ta again, taken from the oral history uh, we did back in the, uh, well, 90s, I suppose, 19 this is Signaler R. Brown. I don't know why we don't know his first name. Uh, and he was at headquarters company. He said this. They were very friendly, especially the older people who'd experienced the First World War. And one of the main things in the cafes was they, they wanted us to sing all the old First World War songs that they knew. Pack up your troubles. It's a long way to Tipperary. Kick the home fires burning. They remembered all of them. And some could even join in the singing. We had some very good evenings with them. Well, you know. Um, do you think they got on well with the French this this time round? Well, there's the usual, uh, as you described it in the notes, as uh, cultural frizzle. Damn, I didn't exactly know. <laughs> <laughs> to be encountered when the British go abroad, because we're good, we're, we're good like that, aren't we? Um, we're so good at integrating and, and falling in with the ways of other people, aren't we? Yeah, and the, I mean, they discover that the French are very strangely un-English. In the, in the way they live You life. mean Frenchmen aren't English? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's unbelievable, of course. And no British soldier would ever complain that he's not in life, Pete. They just no. wouldn't yeah. moan. Oh, yeah. no. No, no. You never moan, do you, Gary? I never moan. I, I... Did you moan when you were in the army? No. Right, now you're going to be Captain Peter Barclay. Uh, he was uh, in command of A, I think he was in command, uh, of A Company. He was in A Company anyway, 2nd Norfolk's. Uh, go, Gary. They're terribly conservative, of course. The beer wasn't the right sort of beer, and the French cooking was too oily or whatever. They really took a long time to get used to anything, other than the customary victuals. They didn't touch wine. They didn't take to that at all kindly. Calvados! Occasionally, if they were feeling flush. Now, I think uh, I think Peter Barclay here is severely underestimating the lad's ability to drink anything that comes near him. And this is Private Ernie Legger, headquarter company. And he seems to have uh, got on with uh, a variety of drinks. You're going to read this? When we got back in the evenings, we went to the cafes almost every night. Typically, French cafes, the French would drink wine. And we started to drink wine as well because there was not much beer. French beer didn't taste like beer. It was a little bit vinegary to me. We started to drink wine, and the wine they drank was not the medium sweet, which we'd been used to at home. Oh, God. It was Sorry. a sort of a bitter wine, but I got used to it, and I got a nice habit for it. I started to drink wine all the time, red wine. They drank it, and we thought, well, if they can drink it, why shouldn't we? Now, they weren't there long in the Arras area. In October, early October, they move up to the Belgian frontier. They go to a, a small village of Rumages. I've no idea where that is. Um, and uh, here they're on the extreme right of the British line. Uh, so they are jutting onto the, the French, I suppose. And they begin to construct a, a, a continuous series of trenches, which later on would be known as the Gort Line. Now, do you know who that's named after, Gary? Uh, would that be the uh, Commander-in-Chief Lieutenant-General Sir John Gort, VC, Pete? Ooh. Now, we want, to, we, we want to make a point, and it's a bit like the Hague business from the First World War. Um, Gort is often criticised for his role in the 1940 campaign. Now, I, I, I'll be honest, we don't really know much about it, that. 
to, to comment on. But what we want to do is just spend a little bit of her time thinking about why those funny letters VC, not WC, Gary, VC, follow his name. And they come from an incident on the 27th of September, don't they? So well, what's happening on the 27th of September, 1918? Yeah, he was uh, commanding the battalion, his battalion, the 1st Grenadier Guards, and, and that... and. He was leading the, the Guards Division assault on the Canal du Nord and Hindenburg line, which... Oh, at Flesgrove. Yeah, yeah. We've, both, we've visited both those areas, you know, and, and you're going to read his citation, Peter, aren't you, for the uh, the Victoria Cross, just to, just to give some flavour to what he actually did. And, and I want to point out that the Canal du Nord was mostly dry. Well, it was dry, but, but it was a hell of an obstacle. And this is what the official citation says. And... Under heavy artillery and machine gun fire, he led his battalion with great skill and determination to the forming upground, where very severe fire from artillery and machine guns was again encountered. Although wounded, he quickly grasped the situation, directed a platoon to proceed down a sunken road to make a flanking attack, and, under terrific fire, went across open ground to obtain the assistance of a tank, which he personally led and directed to the best possible advantage. While thus fearlessly exposing himself, crikey, Gary, <laughs> he was again severely wounded by a shell. Notwithstanding considerable loss of blood, after lying on a stretcher for a while, he insisted on getting up and personally directing the further attack. By his magnificent example of devotion to duty and utter disregard of personal safety, all ranks were inspired to exert themselves to the utmost, and the attack resulted in the capture of over 200 prisoners, two batteries of field guns and numerous machine guns. Lieutenant Colonel Viscount Gort then proceeded to organise the defence of the captured position until he collapsed. Even then, he refused to leave the field until he had seen the success signal go up on the final objective. Now, you might think that's the usual flannel, Gary. It, 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 the VC citations are not always real, are they? But So we've got, and this is an eyewitness report you're going to read from one of his lads. And, and this is not the usual flannel. This is one of the men he led into action. Uh, and you're going to be Private Norman Cliff uh, of the 1st Grenadier Guards. What, what's he say about Lord Gort? Lord Gort, leading the front platoons into position for assault, was slightly wounded in the left eye. His head bandaged by his soldier servant, Guardsman Ransom, he carried on, and inspired by his example, we swept over the canal and on towards Flecure, from which came heavy fire from guns planted in houses. A shell burst close to Gort, wounding him badly in the left arm. Bleeding profusely from a cut artery, he refused to go to a dressing station and ordered Ransom to apply a tourniquet but his energy drained away, and Captain Simpson, commanding our company, took command of the battalion. As we plodded on, to our amazement, Gort reappeared. He leapt from his stretcher and rushed to join in again. The sight of this dauntless man, with his square figure, clipped moustache, fair windswept hair, cap, <laughs> cap tilted over his left ear, and blood-soaked bandages, leaping into action, stirred our hearts and impelled us to efforts we thought were beyond our powers. We cleared a trench held by a crowd of Germans and seized the next one, rounded up dozens of prisoners and took over two batteries of field guns. The goal achieved, Gort gave in at the point of collapse. The Germans spotted two men on the horizon and opened fire. They were Gort, staggering along, helped by ransom. A shell severed one of Ransom's arms, and Gort hobbled on, found a medical officer, and returned with him. They did their best for Ransom, but it was too late. Deeply distressed, Gort spoke of him as one of the finest men who ever lived. Now, I'll be honest, I, could, I think that he's looked at uh, the, the citation before he's written that account. It's from his book. But in it is plenty of detail that isn't in the citation, isn't there? Yeah. And, and and he says the man inspired them. Now you you we've got a point here, isn't it? Not all generals are chatter 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 chatter. Do you like a chatter? I like a chatter. Do you like a natter? Do you like? I do. <laughs> and you'll like chatter. Oh, no man, we'll come back to that. But they're not they're not all people behind no, and, the and lines, the point are they? We're trying to make is um, 
And, and you put it really well. Today's donkeys were yesterday's young heroes. And Gort especially, this is the case, isn't it? He, I mean, whatever you think of his performance in 1940, don't denigrate the man and don't treat that as his life. His life stretched off, was way before that. Yeah, I mean, I judge, mean judge the whole man, not just, you know, one performance in one particular time frame. And, and he got his VC when he was a lieutenant colonel. He'd served in the army bravely before that. So there we go. Now, Gort's line is intended to act as a continuation of the Maginot line. And it goes along the Belgian frontier. What does it come to in the end, Gary? Well, the sea, I suppose, Pete. Big splashy thing. Big splashy yep. thing. So it, it's a continuation of the Maginot line, but unfortunately without all the faults and bunkers and undergrounds. Well, they're going to advance into Belgium. Really. Yeah, exactly. It's really only a, but yeah. the point now, I'm trying um, to make is, you know, they're really quite exposed there. They are. Now, uh, do you think the lads, when they were digging in, do you think they found that the, the, the ground in Belgium had changed since 1914 Oh, yeah, I'm sure they did a lot of work to, to improve drainage, etc. Well, this is Sigler R. Brown again, headquarter company. He says, it was a waterlogged area and in some places we couldn't dig deep enough. We tried to go down about six foot, but we, if we could only manage four, then we had to build revetments above and make our own wattle hurdles out of wood and fill them with soil and stones to build it above ground. We had pumps going if the trench was any depth to take the water uh, out, uh, out, out all the while. And that's a barricade, barricade trenches, just like in 1914-15 when, when they first came into Belgium. Belgium and northern France. It's quite interesting. Uh, it, was it a well-sighted line, do you think? No, and that's the point I was trying to make when you... you, you so rudely. Yeah. But it's not, oh, it's oh. not well-sighted. The problems encountered were overcome with basic ingenuity, which only highlighted the underlying problems of using a frontier as the basis of a defensive line. That is a bit... It's not, it's not a sensible thing. No. A frontier is just a line on a map, isn't it? Absolutely. No, now, you're going to be Captain Peter, Bar Peter Barclay of A Company. He's going to tell us a bit about, about the digging in and the problems and the inadequacies of the Gort line. I noticed I'm getting the officers today, Pete. Is that because you've recognised well, my potential? I've recognised your potential. It's huge. This is Captain Peter Barclay. Our job was to prepare defences along the line of a little stream, which in some cases meant that there was practically no field of fire at all. Rather than so, hang on. That would mean if it's a stream, it's in a valley. Yeah, uh, of sorts. Yeah, rather would be an unusual stream on the top of a ridge, wouldn't it? Yeah, that'd Sorry. be a canal. <laughs> <laughs> rather than drop back and take up a reverse slope position, we had to defend the frontier, presumably because this stream did provide in most places an anti-tank obstacle. Many of my platoon section positions were breastworks and some even were built in trees to raise them off the ground sufficiently to give a field of fire, with of course an enormous build-up or foundation underneath. We had to make hurdles, stiffened up by either lopped off trees or great thick stakes and filled with earth. They were quite extraordinary and really seemingly ridiculous. Enormously high breastworks in front and a splinter-proof backdrop behind, otherwise they resemble trenches in trees. <laughs> Never used in the war at any stage, and I should think people were thankful they didn't have to. Absolutely. Now, they're, they're, so that they're this is what they're doing between October and, and Christmas. They're, they're digging in. And this is a lot of work, isn't it? I, I mean, I bet the lads were... were uh, pleased at this the uh, i could imagine them uh, unmoaning uncomplaining not grousing not whining not whinging um but they also got a, a variety of visitors um uh, from curious generals most generals are curious in some way or other or strange uh, Oh, so having been nice generals, we seem to have just accidentally drifted into abuse. And they also, uh, Barclay, Peter Barclay, remembers getting a visit from somebody, a real big knob. Who was that? Well, they get a visit from uh, Winston Churchill. And uh, Captain Peter Barclay of A Company says this. He was in tremendous good form. He came along followed by an array of brass. I had a little mongrel. And as we were walking along from one position to another, she suddenly started barking at a pile of faggots. Winston was most intrigued by this. He said, a little sport, a little sport. Yes, if we play it right. He said, well, let's play it right. How do you want it played? I said, well, what we really want to do is get three officers on top of that pile of faggots and have them bounce. Then they'll bolt the rabbits and we'll have a hunt. 
His eyes lit up and the three senior generals were ordered onto this pile of faggots, directed by Winston, as orchestra conductor, as it were. He synchronised the bouncing. They had no alternative. They were just ordered up there by Winston and ordered to bounce. They boing, looked, boing, boing. They looked pretty Sorry. foolish with their ADCs looking on, but they entered into the spirit of the thing. Sure enough, very shortly... The rabbit bolted, and we had a most exciting hunt, which intrigued Winston no end, when my little dog gave tongue and hurtled after the rabbit. Now, bear in mind, they can only do this sort of thing because they're in this period that's described as the phony war, Pete. Now, yeah, phony war. Now, that runs for an eight-month period from September 1939 through to the 10th of May 1940. And there, and there are limited military operations on land, particularly on the Western Front, but both Britain and France engaged on economic warfare against Germany. So, for example, they begin the naval blockade um, and they start they start to make elaborate plans Peter, for invasion of just about everywhere in the Balkans, frankly, and uh, including, for example, Norway. But it's all a bit too little too late and, and and at the same time you've got Russia for example invades Finland the Germans are active at sea and and you know they sink some notable notable ships including uh, HMS Courageous which uh, goes down with a loss of I think 539 lives as you said before when there's a disaster at sea Pete it's a disaster um, so uh, it, it's an interesting phrase the phony war it, it's an Americanism the British referred to it originally as the Boer War, as in boring, um, you know, in a play on their, their most Very recent amusing. activity. Yeah. Very amusing. No, nothing like a spot of humour. And, and rather interestingly, the Germans were quite humorous about it as well because they referred to it as the Sitzkrieg. <laughs> Germans are funnier than us, though. They are funnier than us on this occasion, yeah. Now, uh, so so the the, uh, the the British are on the first of January nineteen forty. Uh, the 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 British uh, the uh, the Royal Norfolk's uh, second battalion are sent to take up positions in the the. Oh, could you say that for me, please? de Conta. Yeah, it's a mile in front of the village of. Uh, can you say that for me, please? Valvestroth. And that's on the Saar front. So they've been actually assigned to. The, the French. And this is uh, Private Ernie Farrow. Uh, I remember Ernie. What a great bloke he was. He was a pioneer section of H HQ Company. What does Ernie say about this? We were between the Maginot Line and the Siegfried Line, and there we came on these trenches. There was hardly anything above the ground, only snow. They were trenches that had been dug down and reveted with duckboards in them. They were all dry because of these frosts which dried everything up. In some places... They were dug underground. The company headquarters was underground, but we were on top in the trenches. We just had the stars above us. Ah! It was very, very cold. And at night time, we got inside our big bags. He means sleeping bags, doesn't he? Yeah, he just, does. uh... During the day, we managed to find some sandbags that we filled full of straw and wrapped them round our legs to keep our legs and feet warm. Much better to walk about like that as well. One morning, looking over the top of the trench in the distance, I could see someone moving about. We were told that they were the Germans, and to keep our heads down, because their snipers were quite apt to pick you off at that distance. So we kept our heads well down after that. I'm noticing that despite the basic training we talked about, these guys don't know much about it, do they? Uh, no. I mean, you, they had to be told to keep their heads down? Uh, it's quite interesting that now uh, Sergeant Walter Gilding of the of the Mortar Platoon. That's uh, also part of Headquarter Company. He, he took over a dugout for, from uh, the Royal Scots. Fine body men, the Royal Scots. We we won't hear a word said against the Scots, will we? Not by other people. We like to say it ourselves, don't we? <laughs> and, and we've learned not to do it during the uh, during the recording. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because otherwise, yeah, we gets. <laughs> yeah. So this is uh, Walter Gilding. He says this. The mortar pit had already been dug into the railway embankment and there was a place dug at the back into the bank of the railway. They'd made up a, a little fire stove place in there with a metal funnel coming out of the top. On arriving there, we lit up, <laughs> found that we were choking to death with smoke for five days. The day we left, <laughs> I checked outside to the chimney and found it had been stuffed up by some old pair of socks. The Scots had done this 
as a joke. <laughs> oh, how they love the Scots. I, I think that's a great story. Um, the detachment commander said, this is when he took over. It's impossible to take the mortar base plate out of the ground. It, it's frozen in. So I just handed over my base plate to him and took over his. When I was relieved, I did the same thing. You just couldn't dig it out. It was frozen in. We were all fairly young and fit, and I suppose that makes all the difference, but it was so cold. We huddled together in this little dugout at the back of the mortar pit, and I don't think we hardly looked out of it for the five days. We had a sentry at the opening of the, opening of the pit. I had a pair of binoculars. I could look across the railway line to this wood 900 yards away where we'd seen the Germans. Each morning they used to come out with a towel round their necks where they'd been having a wash and wave it to us. <laughs> we used to say, God, why can't we... He means open fire. We, we've got mortars, mortar bombs. We were in range. We were ordered not to fire by the battalion headquarters, by the, by the commanding officer. At the time, we thought maybe they're discussing peace terms or something of that nature, and they didn't want us to provoke the situation. It made sense to us. We were there. It didn't make sense to us. Of course, it didn't make bloody sense to us. We were there to fight a war, and we weren't allowed to get on with it. Mm. Pretty frustrating, wouldn't you think? Yeah, pretty much so, particularly as you could see them. Yeah, yeah, and an excellent target. Yeah. Uh, you know. Now, so uh, they'd been training. They wanted to do their job. Now, this is a quote from uh, Captain, another quote from along this uh, embankment from Peter Barclay again, Captain Peter Barclay, A Company. There were some railway carriages on an embankment which ran through no man's land, and the Germans used this as an observation post. Occasionally, I could see them with a pair of field glasses moving, moving through the carriages. I thought, well, that's a jolly good gunner target. So I ordered fire to be brought down by the French artillery 75s, which were supporting us. Nothing happened to my indignation. Gah. And I got on to battalion headquarters to find out why I wasn't receiving the response to which I reckoned I was entitled. They said, oh, it's not a legitimate target. The only legitimate target you should know by now is a working party in the open. Such was the phony war. So you know, um, this this is this is a strange period. Whatever I mean, th this is why it ends up being called the phony war. And I understand. I mean, there were things happening, as you've said, but I understand why people just—it's not like the Great War, is it? And Private Ernie Farrow says this, a pioneer section about again. They're, they're, what are they? They're bloody well improving the defence works. That's what they're doing. What does Ernie say? We had this Dannet wire round rings of wire. This came up, lorry loads of it. We had to get this out at night in the dark in certain positions. We took an iron stake out with us and tried to drive it into the ground. The ground was frozen stiff. Because we <laughs> couldn't get it in very far, we had a rope and two of us would stand back with this rope on top of the post to hold it back. Then they'd pull this Dannet wire out, hundreds of yards of it, and make it fast at the other end. Then we find a small stake to drive into the ground and again to hold the damn thing up straight, which was a heck of a job. Now, that, that's all, all, all good fun, I accept. All, all in no man's land and all with the like possibility of fire being opened. But it was quiet. Um, now, intelligence is, is always much prized, especially when nothing's happened. Because you always say, what do you think? If the Germans aren't doing, you think, what are they going to do, don't you? That's what's going on through your mind. Um and the no man's land is is quite big, isn't it? I mean, how far? What's the average sort of width of no man's land? Would you say at that time, Gary? Well, right, this is an average. Yeah, I mean, it's between eight hundred to a thousand yards. Clearly, in places it was different, but that's that's the average. And the thing, of course, is Pete that they'd they'd learnt from the Great War that uh, you know the value of intelligence, and uh, they would often do trench raids and things. So it, it wasn't it wasn't unusual in the Great War. That, in that, the Great that, yeah, War, yeah. That, so it wasn't yeah. unusual to want to get intelligence on what the uh, uh, what the uh, the enemy were doing, and also you want to know the exact nature of the defences that that are. Uh, uh, so though, although they weren't raiding, which is an, no. they, they were going to send out recce patrols, weren't they? Yeah, and they do in fact send out uh, patrols. And on so the, when are, when do, when are the first go on out? the fourth of January, the famous one. two British patrols are sent out. One's commanded by Lieutenant Everett, which returns without any incident at all. 
uh, although they were able to claim the honour of being the first. Now, uh, first, hang on, first British patrol first British to patrol. cross the German border. Oh, of course. sorry, Peter. Yeah, the first uh, British c- patrol to cross the German border. There had been other patrols. Yeah, which is a nonsense distinction. I accept that. It's just, it's just a thing. Now the other is under Captain Peter Barker. We've heard of him somewhere, haven't we? And he encounters a bit of trouble, and he 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 goes through the German lines around about the Waldeweiss, Waldeweiss, the Waldeweiss, the Waldwisser. Oh, for God's sake! Railway station. Now you're going to you're going. To, now this is uh, this is quite exciting in a sense. What happens to Peter Barclay? Tell us what happens to you, Gary, as Peter Barclay. They wanted to know what sort of setup there was the other side of the enormously elaborate barbed wire entanglement that the Germans had in front of their positions, and a prisoner was wanted for identification purposes. So I went out with a patrol of five, one other officer and three chaps. We were out most of the night. I suppose it took about an hour and a half to get up to their positions. The first positions we came up to were empty. They had built up breastworks, I suppose because the ground was so hard, and that combined with a better field of fire. They had a most lavish display of barbed wire entanglements in front of their positions, but luckily we could see where to get through because there were tracks in the snow. Every Every now and then we had to do a bit of cutting to get through. We went a long way into the German position and discovered a great deal of information. We didn't get a prisoner. It was a moonlit night and of course the clouds were there to help you one minute and gone the next. There was a house which they'd been using a very short time before we got there. But after casing the joint, they'd obviously moved to other positions. As I came out of this house, we were spotted and a grenade landed between my legs. A light egg baker-like grenade. It damaged my boots, but didn't damage me. Whew. We came under a very heavy fire from all over the place, but luckily it was inaccurate, and we all managed to make our way home. Now, for that, it, 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 you know, you compare it to a First World War experience, and it's almost nothing. It, it, it would be a route, almost a routine thing. But for that, it, it's the first. He's, he's awarded the Military Cross. And uh, in, in that, he becomes the first BEF officer to be decorated in the war. And one of his men, Lance Corporal H. Davis, gets the Military Medal. Um, now, uh, what's the disadvantage of poke, poke, poking the Germans in, in any way? Well... <laughs> Basically, it seems to have heightened the attentiveness of the German sentries, so they're on their guard, Pete, as a result. So what happens? Well, on the 7th of January 1940, uh, Lieutenant Everett takes out another patrol. So that, that's three days later, three nights later. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, unfortunately a more melancholy first's recorded, and you're going to be Private William Cron of the uh, Carrier Platoon HQ and- Company. And, and Cron says this, Lieutenant Everett took a patrol out from our lads. I had a very bad cough. <laughs> and every five minutes I was coughing. So I said, oh, so he said, oh, you'd better stop behind. I'm not taking you because you'll give the game away. You'll give our positions away. He gave me some acid sweets that he'd had sent from England. He said, here you are then. They'll cure your cough. You do the cooking for the lads while we're away. And when we come back, we'll want our cup of tea and a sandwich. I said, okay, sir, my voice, what's wrong with me? <laughs> I said, okay, sir, that'll be all right. The next thing, the sergeant came running back. He got shot through the arm. A couple more lads were shook up. I said, what's happening? What's happening? They said, Lieutenant Everett, he's been, just, he's been shot out of a tree. We've had to leave him and run. He was the first British officer to be killed in France. And they gave him a military funeral with flags and everything. Not much good to him, though. Yeah. So they obviously retrieved his body either that night or another night. Uh, he'd been up a tree, getting a, a higher viewpoint, hadn't he? Mm. Um, so, uh, so that's the first, uh, the, you know, what a, what a, you know, uh, first, uh, first casualty. Uh, the battalion, they, they take their turn in the, the, the ligne de contact and the reserve ligne de recul. Uh, they're just the outer defences. We've discussed that. And uh, uh, the real Maginot line is a ligne de resistance. Have I pronounced any of them right? I, uh, it was it was like being in France, Pete. 
Yeah. Right, and this is uh, Captain Peter Barclay, uh, who's talking about the real Magellan, because they're taking on a bit of a tour, aren't they? They have a look round. And he, he's bloody impressed, isn't he? What does he say, Gary? It was absolutely unbelievable. It was controlled like a hub of a battleship. There was an enormous office with press buttons and switches all over the place, deep down in the bowels of one of these forts. When a mortar, for example, was called upon to fire, a button was pressed and a cupola on top of the tower rose up. This fired, and then having been fired, it was lowered down again. It was mechanised to the nth degree. Now, so very impressive machinery, but something worries Barclay. There's something wrong, and he's worried about the attitude the 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 attitude of 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 the the French garrison, what what does he think? Of, what what what's his problem with? What, what what's wrong with the French garrisons? I mean, the British are always criticising the French. Of course they are, but there's something in particular wrong this time, isn't it? Yeah, Captain Barclay says, I had a motto, on ne passe pas which applied basically to the Maginot line. Now, just to interrupt, this is from Verdun, isn't it? Mm. On, on in the Passeray Park. That's from 1916, 17 in the, in the, uh, the, the First World War. Great they, war. they will not pass, isn't it? They will not pass, yeah. yeah. Um, he goes on to say, All the French soldiers and a lot of the French population had little badges with a fortress and on their Passeray Park stamped across it. This had an adverse effect, in fact, on the French army as a whole. They had a totally passive attitude to the war, an indoctrination of being ready to receive rather than to go on the offensive. They were firmly of the opinion that the Maginot Line couldn't be crossed anywhere and that as long as they sat on that and used the enormous firepower it was capable of producing, they could keep the Germans on the other side. They were dead against any form of patrolling and they just sat in their trenches all through the night and waited for anything to happen that might happen. Now, that, that's, that's interesting. And that is the general... Uh, there's a lot of... That's the general British opinion of the French uh, performance of uh, the garrison of the Maginot Line. Whether it's fair or not, we'll leave to other people to decide. But that's what the Norfolks thought, certainly what Peter Barclay thought. Now, they, they have a month's tour of duty as uh, part of the sort of outer outer defences of the Maginot Line, and then they returned to Rummagees. Wasn't that a Marlborough battle, I'm now wondering? Um, and they were assigned to the Divisional Reserve, where they're, they're, which is at Orkies. Uh, what what's their life like here? What what's life like in reserve during the phony war? Well, it's typical for soldiers, isn't it? It's life there's made up of digging yet another set of trenches. A never set. Well, would you need a never set for more training, sports, oh, yeah. and best of all, Pete, home leave. Oh, lovely. You you think the men were sent home first before the officers? Oh yeah. Um. Now, the, the battalion had, had attracted quite a bit of interest, hadn't it? Press interest because of these... It, it, it seems ridiculous to someone who studies the Great War. The, the sort of mini-dramas they make of these Tsar night patrols. It, it, and they're quite trivial. I mean, I know, I know that poor chap lost his life. I'm not decrying that. But what I mean is they're out of all proportion. Uh, and why are, they made, why are they making such a fuss out of it? Well, they're, they're desperate for, for hard news in what they perceive, the press perceive, as the tedium of the phony war. They, you know, it's not, it's not as people anticipated. People anticipated the declaration of war and these mass battles with Germany. And that's not what was happening. Now, Captain uh, William Murray Brown, second officer, I think he becomes a colonel later, in charge of, 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 of either the regiment or something. But anyway, I know he becomes uh, much more senior than that. And he says this, press photographers invaded in large numbers and the patrol had to reenact its exploits in front of a news cameraman. Fortunately, snow was still on the ground. The rum issue before the patrol set out was of intense interest to the cameraman and had to be reenacted until he was quite satisfied as to its efficiency. A proceeding more than satisfying to the patrol. I, I love that. And those photos, there are a lot of very famous photos of Peter Barclay and his patrol in, in a snow-covered background. And this makes it quite clear, they're fake. Uh, and that calls to mind, again, things that happened in the First World War. A lot of uh, famous film footage was, was fake. 
There's some real, like in the Battle of the Somme, there's some real film, obviously, and our friend Steve Roberts has, has been through this, but there's also fake film done at uh, the Trench Mortar School and other places, and it is clear they're doing the same thing. So life goes on and still uncertain, if you like. Nothing's happening. If effectively, nothing's happening. Uh, and and the officers are, are told about the plan. That, that this is the plan that's been put about together by Gamelan, Gore and other leaders. And and what do they call this plan, Gary? Yeah, What's it it's uh, unpromisingly, it's uh, named Plan D. Well, perhaps you'll tell me about plans A, B and C first. Yeah, they, they all ended up in the bin, I think. And... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they went with the, the plan D, which arguably should have also ended up in the same place. Cause, uh, so what were they going to do? Well, in the event of a German offensive, <laughs> plan D envisaged the immediate movement of the BAF across Belgium. And it was described uh, that they would take up positions on the River Dial. So that's form another defensive line on the River Dial. Um, which so that that that's that's a, is there any more detail to the plan? Yeah, the Norfolk's is, is were a... going to take up uh, advanced positions at Wavre, which uh, which is about twenty five miles southeast of Brussels, Pete, um, and rings a bell. Now, so the, the, this is uh, it's it's um, it's um, one of the it, it's part of the uh, Waterloo campaign. It's where the Prussians finish up uh, yeah. before they come and rescue us. Sorry about that. Um, and now, um, so that's the plan. Were they able to? Were they able to uh, go out and, and sort of carry no, out proper recce in Belgium? No, they couldn't do what would, would, we would describe as normal reconnaissance. I mean, that was impossible. So the officers, I suppose, you'd give the game away. Wouldn't yeah, they, they decide to bend the rules a little bit to achieve their goals. Pete, and, now you're uh, going to be Captain Peter Barclay. There's a lot from him. It's a great interview. It's on the Imperial War Museum website. Have a listen. And what does Peter Barclay say about this? It was an extraordinary performance because we weren't supposed to go in uniform and so Mufti had to be sent out for us. We all went in Mufti suits by car across to the eastern Belgian frontier. There on the ground, we reconnoitred the positions we were to take in the event of the Germans attacking from that angle. We knew exactly where to go and what positions to dig as soon as we arrived there. So that that's good, good solid preparation work. Despite the rules, they they'd managed to do an effective recce. Um, now the, the thing is, uh, uh, um, th there's something going to happen, uh, and that is that the phony war comes to a rather abrupt uh, end. Uh, so so what's what's the background to this? When when does it end? Well, 9th of April, there's uh, news received of the German invasion of Denmark and Norway, Pete. So what do they do? What 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 do the well, Norfolk? How do Denmark's nowhere near Belgium? No, but as a direct result of this, on the eleventh of April, the Norfolk's are placed on six hours' notice to be ready for the advance to the the, the Dial. Should the, Germans, the River Dial, yeah. Should the Germans invade Belgium? So they're getting wrong. Now, what does uh, Private Ernie Farrow, uh, Pioneer Section Headquarters Company, what does he say about this? We didn't know much about Norway at all. We had our own little goings on where we were, and, and we hardly knew what was going on anywhere else in the world. Only around Orkies. So there they were, and uh, and we're going to leave them for this episode. It's not been a long episode, but just setting the scene, aren't we? And the phony war, whatever you think of it, it was, a, a compared to the Great War, it was a phony war, and I understand why they call it. But what's going to happen now? What's really going to happen? What's really, really going to happen? Well, the phony war's over, Pete, and make no mistake, it's coming. The real war. The yep. Blitzkrieg. Oh, dear. And we'll be dealing with that next time. And uh, there's two episodes on that. One, the initial fighting. And secondly, uh, a place called Le Parody, which might uh, might uh, strike a chord with you. Now, the other thing we want to do, uh, we're enjoying doing the Royal Norfolk Regiment. It's, 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 infantry are, they're the boots on the ground, aren't they? They're, they're the lads. That they, uh, we, we enjoyed doing the South Nuts Hussars, but it's good to do an infantry regiment to get the real picture of the lads in action. Uh, but we've got another new initiative coming, and uh, and that's uh, that's uh, what we call. Uh, we're going to start interviewing some of our friends who are authors, historians, guides, uh, people that we think you might might be interested in. And this is going to be a separate series of podcasts, which will come out on on hopefully a Monday or Tuesday. 
Um, and uh, we've got a name for this. Um, and we've got a little routine that we do. We, we did half of it in the middle of the podcast because we, we tend to go off at half cock. Uh, Gary in particular goes off at half cock. So uh, what the, the, it's called uh, it's called Chattanatta. And, and it's going to be conversations with our friends. And I'd just like to say, uh, do you like a chatter, Gary? Yeah, I do. Do you like a natter? Gary? I do. Then you'll like chatter natter. <laughs> well, it's difficult to time. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I think you'll enjoy it. They won't be as long as this. It'll be between half an hour and three quarters of an hour. Just about uh, our friends, what they're doing. Not about the bloody uh, COVID, but about the books they want to talk about, the projects they want to talk about, about about how they've become a historian, what they're doing. I think it's going to be interesting. Don't you, Gary? I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, there is a problem, Pete. We've only got three friends, so it could be a short series, and we may well be speaking to mechanics, dentists, electricians. <laughs> people who come to, Anybody who comes mend to the, the trades. <laughs> Hello. Like a chatter. <laughs> yeah. I'd love a natter. And it's Chatternatter with Pete and Gary. And the first one's <laughs> first one's going to be who, Pete? Well, the first one uh, is going to be Josh Levine, uh, who uh, is a very well-known historian, um, uh, colleague of Max Arthur, and involved in several of his most famous books, including his book on the Great War. Um, and since then, uh, he's written so many great books on the Blitz, on uh, on uh, the Somme, on the, uh, quite a lot on aviation history, on Dunkirk, on Ireland, and on the Blitz, uh, the Blitz in England, uh, the, the the reaction. He's written so many great books, uh, and uh, he's he's involved a lot in documentaries. He's in some dreadful programs that those programs are not. He's ate my bunny rabbit, that kind of thing. And his role is normally to say uh, they put up a thing saying, "Did not did Hitler." escape and become a a professor of history at uh, Birkbeck University and uh, and then they flash to uh, Josh and he says no <laughs> <laughs> no it's bollocks <laughs> and, uh, and then you'll see him in another one uh, great engineering works and uh, did this mean that the Germans could have won the war and he'll go no <laughs> it's just bollocks he does so have, he does have other phrases to be fair he does. He does. Rubbish. Yeah. Uh, Pitiful. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to that, Pete, and hope that the, the listeners will too. So, on that note, Pete, I'm going to say goodbye. 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 Goodbye, goodbye. Blade of Grass. Good, goodbye. Have a Blade of Grass. And uh, I'll see you next time. Cheers, Pete. Cheers, mate. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?